0: welcome back to the policy viz podcast i'm your host john schwabish i hope you and your friends and your family are all safe and well and healthy in these strange times this, my friends, is the final episode of the Policy Fizz podcast for this season. No, don't worry. I will be back in the fall with more great interviews with folks in the fields of data visualization and open data and presentation skills and technology, but I'm going to take the next few months off and rest and relax and recharge. And to finish off this season of the podcast, I'm excited to have Valentina De Filippo with me. Valentina is an illustrator, a designer, a teacher, and a writer, and we talk about all the sorts of things that she does keeping her busy. Uh, when you look through Valentina's work, you don't see a lot of line charts and bar charts and pie charts, what you might consider some of your standard chart types, but instead she spends a lot of times creating new and different forms and non-standard graphs. And so we spend a lot of time talking about how she thinks about communicating data in those different ways to her audiences. We also talk about her data visualization infographics workshops, uh, one of which is coming up very soon. Uh, we talk about some of her mapping exercises and some that I've actually used in my classes when I teach to kids. So I hope you'll enjoy that uh, conversation with Valentina and I hope you'll continue to support the podcast by sharing it with your friends and your social networks. I hope you'll consider leaving a review or rating it on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Before I get to the interview with Valentina, just a couple of things as I think about the next few months and reflect on the few months behind us. It's obviously been a very strange and difficult and challenging few months, uh, both with the COVID pandemic and here in the United States and around the world, the protests against police brutality and inequality. And as I think about my work in the field of data visualization and presentation skills, I've been starting to think more carefully about accessibility and diversity and inclusion and equity and how we can do a better job of communicating our data and our analysis to more people so that they can use it, so that they can make discoveries and they can improve policy in the world around us and so I'm excited to continue that journey with you as, as we continue to think about ways in which we can make our work better and more accessible and more relevant to the world around us part of what I'll be doing over the next couple of months is finishing up my next book Beta, better data visualizations which will hopefully walk you through many of the different types of graphs that are available to you outside of these lines and bars and pie charts And that's why I'm excited to talk to Valentina because she creates a lot of those non-standard graph types. So again, I hope you're well, and I hope your friends and your family are well, and I hope you're staying safe. And so I'm excited to bring this final episode of this season's podcast to you. Here's my interview with Valentina DeFilippo. Hi, Valentina. How are you?
1: I'm great, John. Thanks for having me.
0: Of course, I'm excited to have you on. It's the last episode of the podcast for this quote unquote season. So uh, going out with a bang because I get to chat with you and like, what couldn't be better than that?
1: Amazing. Um, I'm delighted. Thanks. <laughs> um,
0: there are a few things I want to I want to talk to you about, but maybe we can start with you telling folks a little bit about yourself and your background and what you are doing now um, and, and some of the work that you do
1: sure um okay so let's start with labels (laughs) i'm a designer (laughs) um, illustrator and creative director i'm italian as you can probably guess from my accent but i'm based in london and i guess i've been working with data for uh, more than a decade now um but yeah very different formats and different industries so i guess when you're looking at my portfolio you would see like Many um, yeah, different way of representing or perhaps working with data. Um, Sometimes it's pre-standard like interactive platform or editorial commissions. Other times it's a bit more um, unusual perhaps. So I've been working with theater productions where we talked about privacy or climate change during uh, live theater performances or exhibitions or digital products where perhaps we don't even um, visualize the data, but we use data as a way to um, create an experience. And I guess like the common denominator of all these uh, projects is uh, data or working with some sort of like a complexity, I suppose. So yeah, of all the labels, I suppose, information designers in the designer is the one that uh, fits the bill. <laughs> mm-hmm. um,
0: yeah. I find that when I do this podcast, people come to the field of data visualization or information visualization from from all different uh, ways, you know, Mm -hmm. there's no like single path. So you are are a designer by by training and by background. How did you get into this, especially because you started doing the the data part like 10 years ago. So even especially back then, it wasn't sort of a standard path. So how did you end up going down this path of working with data and, and combining it with your design training?
1: yeah interesting so uh, it's been a journey um so I graduated in industrial design at the Polytechnic of Turin, and then I came to London and I did a master in visual communication and I guess like um from the beginning, um, my first steps in data design were really just experimentation with topics and subject matter that I was interested in. And because of the mm. the background that I had, uh, there was quite analytical uh, and perhaps more engineering, I was deconstructing everything I had the opportunity to put my hands on while I studied visual communication and graphic design. So, for instance, the beginning I did a deconstruction of *The Shining* by Kubrick. Uh, my thesis in my uh, postgrad, it was uh, visual analysis of um, stereotypes and how those uh, gender stereotypes specifically are portrayed in uh, um, the literature for kids. Mm. So I did a recollection of many symbols and colors and activities and emotions in which uh, females and males were portrayed. And unfortunately, this was like 2005 and 2006, it was pre-dismay, uh, the amount of mm. bad stereotypes in which men and uh, um, and women specifically uh, were described in this um, mm. uh, literature. And yeah, as you were saying, like probably at that time there wasn't really a thing as co- called data visualization. Um, those projects started to fall into the bucket of information design in my uh, in my program, um, and later on I kind of understood that. Yeah, since the beginning, my first step into visual communication were always kind of like. Um, driven towards visualizing complexity, making, making sense of complexity, um, mm. breaking it down and then piecing it back together to explain my, the insights so or what I learned to others. And then really the project that cemented my practice um, came years later. So the first job that I landed after university was actually in advertising, in digital advertising. So I worked as an art director for a number of years. And then in 2012, um, I got an email from HarperCollins um she's obviously a big publisher and they got in touch saying we saw your uh, experimentation with data like those projects that i just mentioned visualizing gender stereotypes and we would like to discuss Mm -hmm. with you the idea of putting together a book about the history of the world through data and infographic storytelling and i was like oh my god this is amazing (laughs) right (laughs) Right? but at the same time it's like really do i have the skill set to do that um but uh, anyhow, it was, um, it was an amazing opportunity. Uh, it was an arranged marriage, <laughs> as you would say. <laughs> so yeah. um, I was uh, paired with uh, the brilliant James Ball, um, who at the time used to work for The Guardian as a data journalist. And together, yeah, we put our, our brains together and uh, we created 100 infographics from scratch um narrating the evolution of the world and the evolution of mankind um and this is uh the infographic history of the world the book that came out in 2013 huh. and yeah i guess it was like a very ambitious project um very hard uh certainly a daunting uh um brief but Absolutely um, amazing! An amazing opportunity, um, an amazing learning experience. More than anything, it's by doing that you actually learn how to
0: right. how to do it. Um, so, when you finished the book, is that when you decided to just to to start doing information visualization and teaching and workshops full time?
1: Yeah, I guess, again, like it wasn't quite a decision. It was just, uh, I guess, one thing just led to another thing. So the book came out and there was like the uh, business card, right? Um, It just Mm -hmm. opened a lot of opportunities. So... I started to receive more and more briefs and commissions that were uh, labeled as infographic projects or database projects. Uh, Then the Guardian got in touch saying, uh, we're putting together these master classes and we would like to expand our curriculum and include infographic storytelling. Would you like to teach? So one thing kind of led to the next thing. It's life, as it were, yeah. right? <laughs> as is
0: life, yeah. Um, I want to talk about the, the workshops um, in a minute, but I, I also wanted to talk about your, I guess it's your style or your approach to data visualization. Because when I scroll through your portfolio, I don't see, I mean, obviously see lots of different types of of work, as you as you already mentioned, but I also don't see a lot of line charts and bar charts and pie charts and area charts. There's a lot of you have a lot of complex data and there's a lot of different forms going on with your work. And so I'm just curious about that aspect of your work. Are you anti-bar chart or anti-line chart or <laughs> is, it, is it more, you know, that, that creative side of the brain sort of takes over? So I don't really know how to formulate a precise question, but it's more of an observation I think I've made about, about your work um, over, over the last couple of years
1: yeah no i guess like in the portfolio um there is a clear curation of the type of work that i would like to work on
0: yeah (laughs) there
1: is a a filter uh, that i apply i clearly do lots of bar charts and conventional charts um in the day-to-day but um i suppose like whenever i can i i try to push it i try to kind of like um Uh, find a way to balance form and function, obviously, depending Mm -hmm. on the audience, the brief, um, the kind of like purpose of the data visualization. I try to combine um, the informative aspects of what we're trying to do when we're creating a data visualization, like a simple bar chart to the more creative aspect, as you were just saying, to create something that perhaps is more compelling, maybe more aesthetically pleasing, or they can perhaps resonate more with an audience from a semiotic point of view what i mean is um how can we actually bring the narrative behind the data behind these numbers to life through the use of color use of uh, uh, visual metaphors um novel forms different aesthetics that perhaps we borrow from other fields um mm. i guess like a lot of times we tend to think that a chart is um, like a standard chart, right? Like a bar chart is easily understood because anybody can read a b- bar chart. But right. um, is it true? Like, can everybody read a bar chart? Uh, and also, <laughs> are we really um, bringing to life the stories of this bar chart by representing bananas, let's say, and number of deaths in the same yeah. conventional way? Um, so I guess like those are the questions that I'm I keep posing whenever I'm approaching a new brief, and um, sometimes the bar chart is the most appropriate way to go about. Other times I might just experiment with something else.
0: And do you find when you have these experiments and you end up on a on a form that you like, but it's not a bar chart, it's not a line chart, it's you know it's something different. Do you find that you have to spend well, actually, I, I was going to ask you about how you how you spend time explaining to the reader or the user how to read the graph. But actually, I want to back up. How do you explain to the client that this is maybe a better, you know, maybe they're coming at coming to you and saying, "Oh, I, you know, I'm ex-, maybe they're expecting a, a dashboard. Although maybe they're coming to you because they don't want a, dash- a standard dashboard. But do you off- do you have to explain to them why this form that looks, you know, doesn't look like anything they've seen before is actually a, a way that they should go. This is a better way.
1: Um, I guess, as I was saying before, it really depends on the brief. So depending Mm. on the audience and the type of communication, the type of uh, design work that we're doing, um, I might need to um, just stick to whatever is conventional. So let's say I'm Mm. designing a trader platform, right? It's not that I'm going to be redesigning the way that the trader does the work. um, And I will leverage the way the the visual cortex has been trained for years and years, right? So I'm not going to enforce like a, a new novel way of uh, creating the dashboard. Right. Um, on the other hand, though, whenever I've got a brief that allows me to be more creative, um, I suppose the reason that much um, selling work to the client to kind of like um, convince them that there are different ways, because usually... It's kind of like a process, right? We go from the insights, um, the data, what is telling us, uh, discussing the stories that those insights uh, communicate, and then it's a journey to getting into the forms and the shapes and how those can be communicated. So, as long as you kind of like always reference the numbers and the stories, then the forms actually comes. Um, is uh, um, yeah, is a normal evolution, I suppose. Right. It's not something yeah. that you are trying to inform. Let's say, oh, I really want to do. I'm saying something stupid, but like, I really want to do a flower. And then you actually look at the data. It doesn't make any sense to create a flower out of this data, right? Uh, Because the flower doesn't connect to the story and it's probably not the most appropriate way to represent the data shapes either, right? In terms of Mm pre-attentive processing. But if you're looking at the data and you look at the story and then you can find a connection with a flower, then why not? Right. Does it make sense?
0: It does make sense. It's, re- it's really interesting how, especially this, your, your comment about including the data on there m- somehow makes it, or not somehow, but it makes it easier for people to read hmm. um, and understand because the, they can read the numbers right there.
1: Yeah. And I guess like now that I said... Um, uh, I talked about this metaphor of the flower. I guess, like I can briefly just discuss this uh, poppy field that perhaps is one of the most oh, yeah, uh, yeah. popular yeah. visualization. That's simply a scatter plot, right? Um, mm-hmm. So, when looking at the numbers um, and the stories, what we're looking at is the last centuries' uh, war from the 1900s until present days, where the war took place and the toll in terms of uh, the cost. The human cost, the number of lives that each war claimed, as well as I think we had the geography, but quite broadly speaking, just the continent. So the starting point is obviously the data. We're looking at the data and what type of uh, shape is best suited to actually represent all these different variables, because we've got uh, magnitude, number of deaths, um, we've got time, um, so some sort of timeline, and we've got geographies to kind of like uh, tag these, uh, these wars. Um, I guess after a short exploration, a scatterplot seems like evident to be like a good way to go where perhaps we've got a bubble chart on a scatterplot. Uh, the bubbles are representing the number of uh, deaths that each war claimed. And then the, in terms of timeline, where do you place this, uh, these bubbles? At the, the beginning at the end seems intuitive to put it at the end because that's when you count the number of deaths, right? The end of mm-hmm. the war is mm-hmm. when you actually see the cost of the war. So you anchor the bubble there. Um, and then what do you put on the y-axis? So on the x, we've got time. On the y... I'm thinking duration to see how long the war was because on the timeline I just have the end point, right? So I want to see yeah. when it started, when it ends. So I get duration on the y-axis. So that's a kind of like initial exploration. I see what the numbers are telling me, and by visualizing just on this simple uh, bubble chart on a scatter plot. I can see some interesting uh, um, outliers, like two big bubbles uh, at the beginning of of the century, the the Great War, and then in the middle of the century, the Second World War. And then I see um, right at the end of the timeline, a small bubble, but really tall in terms of like the Y positioning. So it's been lasting for like six decades, Palestine, um, um, Israel and Palestine. And that's pretty much the first investigation. Now that I've got like an idea of what the skeleton of the visualization looks like, I'm kind of thinking, okay, now instead of just bubbles, what can I do? And that's when I come up with the idea of like, it can be a poppy field. It can be like a field of commemoration, right? So what if I dress um, uh, those bubbles with, with a flower? And then, if you think about the flower, then I've got a new element that is actually the stem. So I can anchor the flower to the timeline in the moment where the war started and then make it grow horizontally as well as vertically to indicate mm. the passing of time. So I've got timeline both um, for the duration vertically as well as uh, the duration horizontally on, on the time, on the y-axis, on the x-axis. Um, and. Yeah, those poppies, they can change slightly variation of red um, to kind of like group them together in terms of geography. And that's basically the process of getting from something that is quite standard, like a scatter plot, into mm-hmm. something that is perhaps a bit more novel um, that is uh, poppy filled.
0: Right. No, it's interesting the way you describe it as going in some ways step by step and just letting the data inform how you evolve the the form of the of the piece
1: yeah absolutely i think like the starting point is always the data i always need to see the numbers and what they look like um, and that usually happens in a very raw way in Excel or Google spreadsheets, sometimes in raw graph, mm-hmm. sometimes in Tableau, but I just need to see the numbers and the kind of like insights. And then I apply right. all the visual communication, the graphic design, uh, semiotics later on. I guess right. there was only one case where the visual metaphor actually unlocked, um, the data puzzle. It was in me which is funny that I'm referencing to projects that they both use a flower as a metaphor. (laughs) So not all my projects are flowers.
0: (laughs) Um,
1: But anytime, um, the starting point is always the data, and then I go into visualizing the data and then getting to the visual metaphor. But in this specific case, for me to Momentum that is a visual analysis of the Me Too movement of the first six months, I really got stuck at the beginning. Like... We had a million data points. We've got so many um, tweets related to the MeToo hashtag. And mm-hmm. we had a very multi dimensional data set. We have the geography. Uh, we had uh, um, obviously the time in um, which the tweet was uh, shared, uh, the person who shared it, uh, the number of followers. Um, also the number of likes, the number of comments, and obviously the granular um, data that is contained in the in the content of the tweet, right? So doing some mm-hmm. sort of semantic analysis, you could find meanings and frequency of words and all of that. And it was like, wow, okay, where do we start to piece it all together? And more than anything, it wasn't even just the complexity of the data. It was actually the complexity of the subject matter. And looking through the data set was really hardcore, Um, reading through these tweets and the stories was like, yeah, yeah, really challenging, really, really hard. At that point, I actually felt um, the kind of like um, heaviness of working with the data and like responsibility as well of like, am I going to paint anything uh, meaningful? Uh, How can Mm -hmm. I actually give justice to these voices? And then kind of moving forward into the direction of like painting and thinking okay it's just going to be an expression of what this data set that is actually just a drop in the ocean because obviously the movement has been massive and we had uh, um, all the limitations that come with um, you know scraping uh, the twitter api and and so forth Mm -hmm. thinking well what if i just paint an image what could this image be And I thought, what are these voices? Um, These voices are amazingly powerful, but on their own, until now, they've been incredibly fragile. And that kind of like brought me to think about the dandelion as a visual metaphor for something that is uh, regarded as something beautiful as well as uh, fragile, like a female voice. Um, Mm. You know, like you just blow it and it disappears. But it's also amazingly strong because the dandelion is actually not a flower, it's a, it's a weed, you know, like you blow it and all these, um, uh, these seeds can just grow anywhere and uh, it's really fertile. It can grow pretty much everywhere. So you like it to see in a field, but you don't want to have it in your garden kind of thing. Mm. Um, And also, if you think about the dandelion, is this uh, this symbol that has been used in popular culture um, many times to symbolize the hope or the hope for change. You know, when you blow it, you say, most of the time, did you uh, make a wish? Um, So, the kind of like uh, um, semiotics dictated then the shape of the data analysis. in that case, in the specific project, I was like, okay, what if I could paint this data with a dandelion? What attributes do I have in the, um, uh, in the form of the dandelion? So I've got these seeds, they could have different length, um, they could have uh, different size. And then I started to kind of plot the data into the visual metaphor, if it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But that was the yeah. only the only case where I actually went reverse.
0: But it sounds like you, you know you had this connection with the data in such a way that the form the form sort of informed how you were going to do the work.
1: Mm, yeah,
0: yeah that's interesting. Um, it's also interesting the way you describe your process. The way you describe it's sort of very flowing from one state to the next. Uh, so it's not so much like I did this and then I did this and then I did this. It has the way you describe it, just a little bit more uh, has a more of a flow to it. And I'm curious. um, So I I know you teach a lot of a lot of workshops. You mentioned the Guardian Masterclass. Is that how you teach people to uh, create information visualizations? Like again, I don't have a specific question, but but what is your approach to teaching this skill? Which, as we've already talked about, people come from all different ways um, to to be creative with data.
1: Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting challenge, the workshops. <laughs> um, so I run workshop with the Guardian, Graphic Hunters, that is an organization in the Netherlands, uh, as well as uh, corporate trainings or workshop with university students. So I've got many different audiences. And also, the length of my workshop can vary from three-hour format to a week, or perhaps uh, a couple of weeks if I'm working with uh, university students. Mm-hmm. Um, And I started actually with the Guardian. Um, That was my first um, commissioner I would say of um, uh, infographic storytelling workshop. And I guess like I took the challenge as a design challenge. How can I actually explain to other people um, what I do? How can I design a format that will explain that? And I guess like, as you were saying is kind of like sharing with others this flaw how do you go mm-hmm. from the raw uh, spreadsheet into something that is visually compelling as well as uh, highly informative? Um, so I've created like, uh, a few activities and exercises that hopefully illuminate the process. And it's very analogue. I try to keep all this workshop very uh tool agnostic to kind of like remove mm. the barrier of tech. And also because yeah. let's like, say in the at the Guardian, I'm I might have a group of twenty people and all these twenty people are coming from different backgrounds, you know, like uh, some might be data scientists or so very fluent with data and a spreadsheet, but other could be um to know storytellers or health practitioners or um, even just students or uh, retired people. They just want to kind of like expand their knowledge and become better consumers of charts and data. Um, So I try to, uh, yeah, remove a few entry points like the tooling um, and really just focusing on the kind of like decision-making process that goes into creating uh, successful database, um, and yeah, I guess like the aim of these formats is always like to create something that is interesting, informative, inspiring, but also highly accessible. Um, so for anybody to be able to create something, I want to everybody be able to participate, um, and I do create um, a number of activities with just pen and paper. So you are Mm. kind of familiar with the first activity, I suppose, because I spoke (laughs) um, at Information Plus at the conference where we met about this activity that is uh, mapping um, the world geography from memory. And then on top of that, um, we're going to be mapping a personal data set. So perhaps I can talk a bit about that Mm -hmm. Uh, where this initial activity is actually an icebreaker in my format, and it's based mm. on an obsession of mine. So I'm a map collector, and I've been collecting hand maps for about 11 years, since 2009, when for the first time I visited Japan, and I saw a representation of the world where Europe was not in the middle. And I kind of felt... Uh, lost. I was like, oh my God, what's going on? East and West are reversed. Uh, The Americas in on the wrong side, you know, like, um, I kind of felt disoriented. So I turned to the local people and asked them to draw the world map from memory to just kind of like sketch it really, um, really quickly for me. And of the 15 maps that I collected, all of them presented Japan in the middle. Um, and the geography around was uh, somehow uh, more detailed. And then the rest of the world was uh, very much personal, right? Was very much subjective mm-hmm. to um, its own unique map. And that's kind of like a fascination. It's a fascinating uh, thing for me, like how we are innately uh, able, right, to describe uh, a concept like the world visually. But at the same time, it's like so unique to each individual person, right? Um, Based on our own experience, our um, perhaps knowledge of geography, as well as like uh, ability, right, to draw. Um, So I've been doing that for a number of years. And then when I started to design the format of my workshop, I thought, wouldn't it be cool to actually introduce people by drawing their own world map? Because then we could see where people are from, where perhaps they've been. And then on top of that, I thought, what if then I can use that to um, actually plot some data? So the map itself is already a representation of uh, information and personal data that i can walk people through that we can share and then on top of that we can then map a data set a specific story so to be a bit more specific with that um after we draw the world map um we think about a story that could be um maybe the trips that you've taken or if you haven't traveled extensively in, uh, across the world you might think about the food that you consume whether it is a. Uh, Japanese sushi or um, Chinese takeaway or Italian pizza and spaghetti um, or, I don't know, Mexican tacos, right? Anything. Anything can make this story. The only, um, I suppose, filter of all the personal stories that you can possibly introduce yourself to the class is it needs to be global because we've started with the world map. And ah, one note, we start with a world map uh, and I think it's like quite effective in a way because the blank canvas can be very intimidating, especially if you're not coming with a creative background, if you're not used to drawing and sketching, staring at the blank canvas and thinking like, oh, now I'm going to draw this data set. It can be like incredibly challenging and intimidating, especially when you're in a group with strangers. So anybody can somehow articulate what the world looks like when you're asked to do so. So it's a nice kind of like uh, icebreaker in the sense that everybody can actually start noting down, uh, something on paper. And then the next step is to plot this, uh, this, uh, specific story that you might've chosen, like, uh, the travels that you, that you made or the food that you like, or where your family and friends are from, whatever the story might be. And usually in, uh, Um, live events so if it's like a face-to-face workshop because nowadays obviously everything is online so uh, the sophistication of paper choices is not available but if it was a live Mm. event I would bring tracing paper and I love working with tracing paper on my own work because then you don't need to start from scratch over and over you can just Mm. uh, overlay a new layer on top of the map um, and start with a new data set uh, perhaps for correlation to to see two different datasets, or um, or if you perhaps weren't not happy with the encoding that you've just done, you can just remove the tracing paper and start again. But online, yeah, we just do everything on the same, um, on the same sheet of paper or zero box, if you don't have, if you don't have paper laying around. Um, And then I guess like uh, what is interesting in this, uh, in this exercise is that at the end, once we have created our maps and we plotted our, um, our data stories, we swap them around and from being the creators, we become the readers. And there is plenty of learning that can actually be drawn by uh, just doing some really rapid um, user testing um, and see how people actually entered these maps, what they find useful, how they uh, travel perhaps back and forth between uh, the key and the visualization, what type of titles are the most interesting, most um, successful. And ultimately, also, like, it's important to note that the bias that we put as creators are also mirrored in the bias that we put as uh, uh, readers. So whenever we create our maps, obviously, we put ourselves in, this, in the middle of this creation. We see the country where we're from and blah, blah, blah. And when we're reading this visualization, ultimately, what we do is overlaying our own map on top of these world maps um, to find if the creator actually did include our country or did include the places that we know. And that's actually how we read data visualization, right? Like um, there isn't a universal way to um, depict a data set and there isn't a universal way to interpret the chart because everybody has a unique experience and there's a unique understanding of the uh, specific data. So, yeah, in summary, that's kind of like uh, the icebreaker of, um, of the workshops.
0: Wow, really interesting. And, and when you prime people to start adding data to their maps, do you show them examples or do you say, here are some data types that you could plot? Because when I've done this and, and you had inspired this exercise for me when I teach kids... Um, and when I teach kids, I have them just draw the floor, one, one floor in their house. Yeah. Um, and I feel like the times when I show them a drawing of my own house, and then I draw, you know, circles in each of the rooms of how much time I spend in each room, I get a bunch of kids who start drawing circles in the, the, on the, (laughs) on the, on the the map. And so it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand, they may not know how to add the data to the map, but on the other hand, I don't want to prime them to just be using circles
1: yeah yeah it's a fine balance i found the same yeah. um and i have run the same exercise with kids myself and usually kids tend to just like follow the instruction
0: right <laughs> which is fine
1: right. um at the same time uh, with uh, an adult audience as well like you you might have uh the audience that Kind of like stuck and needs a bit of prompt and help, and that's that's totally fine too but i guess like i always try to um suggest a few paths like it could be travels it could be food but what if it was your unique story what could it be um and kind of like rewarding as well of like um you know saying the most creative or the most unusual story will get read in the class or something right. like that. Usually, does uh, prompt a bit more inspiration or the challenge yeah. at least.
0: You have a workshop coming up, right?
1: I do on the sixth and the seventh of July.
0: And it's it's a it must be virtual.
1: It's virtual, yes,
0: it's gonna be on <laughs> Zoom.
1: One of the many Zoom. Um... <laughs> Const, yeah. yeah,
0: one of the many Zoom meetings, right? <laughs> yes. So do you want to just talk about it real quick? And I'll, I'll put a link on the show notes in case people want to check sure. it out. Sure.
1: So it's like um, a full-on deep dive into the process of uh, um, infographic storytelling and data visualization. Um, the activity that I just like uh, um, explained right now would be probably included. Um, as many others, um, we're going to be looking at conventional charts as well as like the use of visual metaphors, storytelling devices um interactivity versus linear uh storytelling and just a lot of like visual communication and visual perception and uh, hopefully a lot of fun so yeah if you want to join me um for anybody listening (laughs) it would be amazing
0: yeah yeah i'll put the i'll put the link on the notes page and people can check it out and i also uh will put links to the various projects that you talked about and of course your. Your whole site um, and the book, um, which is great. I have it here somewhere. I'm trying to turn around and find it in my <laughs> bookshelf. Um, great. Well, it sounds great. It sounds like you're doing you're doing great. Um, thanks so much for for chatting with me. And um, yeah, it's been great chatting. Great to hear from you.
1: Thank you so much for having me, John. Thanks. <laughs>
0: I hope you enjoyed that interview with Valentina and I hope you learned something and maybe can incorporate it into your own work. Take a look at Valentina's website, her portfolio and her classes with The Guardian uh, all linked on the show notes. I hope you'll consider leaving a review of the show on iTunes or Stitcher or Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you'll share it with your networks and if you'd be so kind to support the show financially head over to my Patreon page where just for a couple bucks a month you can help me pay for things like transcription, sound editing and more. I hope you will have a lovely Restful, healthy summer. And I look forward to connecting with you all again in the fall. So until next time, this has been the Policy of His Podcast. Thanks so much for listening.